Before we begin, let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that you've given us to gather together as your people, to be encouraged by it, to be comforted by it, to even be convicted by it. We ask that your spirit would sanctify us by your truth. Oh God, would you reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses that your son is Lord. Father, for those who don't know you, Father, I pray that your word today would be a source of eternal life. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life, that they would see you for who you truly are, the one true and living God. Father, I pray for those who do know you that we would see just how big and great and awesome and wonderful you are that may lead to greater love for you and greater worship in our lives as we seek to do your will. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance... This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I've titled this sermon, The One True and Living God. The One True and Living God. 
Life is not about you. Life is not about me. When you hear that, how do you feel about that? What do you think about that statement, that life is not about you? We constantly need to remind ourselves and recalibrate our thinking, lest we forget who we are and why we were created by God in his image. Life is about God. And it's true that he's got the whole world in his hands. And yes, this is my father's world. But it's not just that he is sovereign over everything, but also that everything belongs to him. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. And also everything exists for him and for his glory. Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So who or what does your life revolve around as you sit there and think about your life, the decisions you make, what you desire, what you want, what you're looking forward to? Who or what does your life revolve around? Who are you living for? Whose name are you seeking to magnify? Who is receiving the glory and honor and praise? The reality is that life is not about us, but we make it about us. And only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ are we able to ascribe to him the worship that is due to his name alone. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 to 25 says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. By the mercies of God, present your bodies, all of you, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Philippians 1, 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And a few more, Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. 1 Corinthians 10.31 sums it up. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're created by God. We belong to God. We are to live our lives to glorify his name. Life is about God. This was no different from the very beginning and in the Old Testament. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God gives creation this mandate to fill the earth and multiply and subdue it, to display as his image bearers, to represent God in this world, to make his glory known to the ends of the earth. In Deuteronomy 6, 
He tells his chosen nation Israel in verses 4 through 9. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Verses 13 to 15. You shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. And we've been studying Genesis in our Sunday school class, Genesis 1 through 11. We'll get to 11 next week, but you'll really see the depravity of man in trying to bring God down to themselves and elevating themselves, making themselves God. But if you want to know what life is all about, you need to read Genesis 1 through 11. It answers all of life's questions. Who is God? How did the world come into being? Why is there sin? Why is the world the way that it is? Everything is answered in Genesis 1 through 11. You have to go back to the beginnings. And in Isaiah 45, 5, it says, I am the Lord. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. In Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is only one true and living God, and all of history and all of life and all of eternity is about him. You will never find significance. You will never find purpose until your life revolves around God. You'll just be wandering around aimlessly, purposelessly, meaninglessly, trying to figure out how to fill that void in your heart. You will never find significance and purpose until your life revolves around God, until you know Him and you worship Him and do what you were created to do. And as believers, this is why we live distinctly. This is why we live with hope. Second Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all. Jesus died for all, referring to all believers, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of the gospel and why the church has been established and commissioned to go and to proclaim it. And as we proclaim the gospel, we've seen that it produces different responses. We've seen that with Paul and his companions as they travel from place to place preaching Christ. In the beginning of Acts chapter 17, Paul, still on his second missionary journey, finds himself in a new place after departing from Philippi. And this was Paul's life, as we learned last week. He goes to a new place. He preaches Christ. Some believe, some reject. There's opposition. And then he moves on to the next place. And so in chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, we saw the response to the gospel in Thessalonica and the response to the gospel in Berea. And now Paul finds himself in a new place again, in Athens, by himself, separated from Silas and Timothy. So proclaiming the good news is what we have been called to do. And proclaiming the gospel will result in different responses. But we must press on and not be ashamed of the gospel and continue to make it known to the end of the earth as Christ builds his church. In these verses, Luke recounts Paul's ministry in Athens so that 
we would understand that life is about knowing and living for the one true and living God. Life is about knowing and living for the one true and living God. And thus the critically important task of making that known, proclaiming the gospel. And we will see Paul's heart that is burdened for lost souls and his opportunity in Athens by the providence of God to preach about this one true and living God and his gospel. So in verses 16 to 21, we'll see the provocation. Secondly, in verses 22 to 31, we'll see the declaration. And lastly, in verses 32 to 34, the response. The provocation, the declaration, and the response. First, verses 16 to 21, the provocation. Again, the word of God says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Paul is in Athens now, uh, which is 200 miles from Berea. If you go back to verses 13 to 15, Luke tells us there, when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately, the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him and join him in Athens. And as Paul is waiting for them, the text says, his spirit was being provoked within him. Why? The text says, again, is as he was observing the city full of idols. Observing the city full of idols. Just that succinct statement about the city of Athens tells us a lot about that city. It was full and filled with all sorts of idols and therefore idolatry. Athens at that time was known throughout the Roman Empire for for many things, for its artwork, for its intellectual sophistication, and especially for its devotion to a multitude of gods. It was a religious center where so-called gods were worshipped. And it's been written that, quote, it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. That's how many idols there were. Everything was dedicated to a god. And statues and temples of gods covered the city. It was truly like walking through a factory of idols which has been said to also describe the human heart, striving after everything but God. And as Paul was observing the city full of idols, his spirit was being provoked. This refers to his spirit being agitated, stirred up, burdened, grieved. In other words, something inflamed and awakened within him because of what he was seeing all around him, namely the dishonoring of God's name. This provocation was a a God-glorifying burden which sprung up because of his love and loyalty to God. 
This was a holy indignation because they were exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures as Paul states it in Romans 1. In Deuteronomy 9, Moses talks about how Israel provoked God. This is a holy, righteous anger or displeasure towards what is dishonoring to him. And in Deuteronomy 9, verse 7, it says, Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And here, it's not just the idols in and of themselves that provoked Paul, Paul's spirit within him. It's the idolatry that's connected with it. It's the false worship that goes with it. What they were giving their lives over to. What they were placing their hope in. This is really about their hearts. It's about their hearts. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 46, 9 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. God alone is worthy of all worship. God alone is to be honored and glorified. God alone is God. And Paul is about to have the opportunity in Athens of all places to declare who this God is. He is the creator, the sustainer. He's the sovereign Lord over all. And therefore, why all people everywhere should repent and believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And so what are the consequences of worshiping idols? What are the consequences of worshiping idols and not the one true and living God? Eternal condemnation. Eternal judgment in hell. And knowing that, as Christians, as believers, what is your heart's response and thinking towards idols? What is your heart's response and thinking towards idols? Is it indifference? It doesn't matter. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Who cares about them? Is it indifference? Is it apathy? Perhaps it's anger, not a righteous anger that's provoking out of a, a love for God and loyalty to him but a sinful anger as you look around this world and see how rebellious people have been, how far and distant they are from God doing their own thing. But let's see how Paul responded, and let's see what Paul did. Verse 17. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. He's walking around Athens, observing the city full of idols, his spirit's provoked with, within him, and so he opens his mouth and talks about Christ. It says, because of Paul's inner conviction, because of his affections for the Lord, he's compelled, he's gripped in his heart to action, and so he reasoned, meaning he opened his mouth and dialogued with them. He conversed and discussed with them about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Basically, everybody was an audience for Paul. Everybody was an ear needing to hear from Paul the good news of Jesus Christ. It says, all in the synagogue, all in the marketplace. And the marketplace was the place of meeting, the public square where 
assemblies would meet and markets would <clears throat> would gather. It's the agora. It's the center of town. It's where everybody went. It's where ideas were shared and new ideas were shared. And verse 18 says, also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Why? Because Paul opened his mouth and shared about Jesus and, the res- and his resurrection. And because of Paul's presence and his message, it says some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So an idle babbler is literally a a scavenger, a seed picker. It's used to refer to a bird going around living on scraps of food. This is how some of them were viewing Paul and his message. In other words, some were saying that Paul was a nobody who didn't know what he was talking about, who picked up scraps of ideas here and there. But others were saying that he's a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. They haven't heard about Jesus before. And so they brought him before the Areopagus, which was the governing council and court in Athens that met on a on a hill called Mars Hill. And they wanted to know what this new teaching was and what it means. And so then Luke adds this parenthetical comment in verse 21 that the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So God has providentially brought Paul to the right place before the intellectual elites and has given him an audience of people who were lost and always looking for something new. And Paul had something new to share with them. They're always searching because something's missing. There's no satisfaction. There's no knowledge and understanding that provides sufficient and full answers and perspective on life and death. Is that you today? You're on this never-ending, never-fulfilling quest to find significance and purpose in this life, in this world, and you can't obtain it. You're living, but not really living because you failed to recognize what life is all about. You're lost. You're trying to figure it all out. You're without hope. You're without peace. You're without joy. Luke here mentions these Epicurean Stoic philosophers, and that's all he does. He simply just mentions them, nothing about their beliefs or their worldview or how they lived life. Because Luke wants us to focus on who God is and the truth of the Word of God in that the Word of God answers all of life's questions consistently, objectively, sufficiently, and authoritatively and provides the only right worldview. And we will clearly see this in Paul's address to the men of Athens. But what do we know of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? It's really nothing new under the sun, and there's various forms of this today. All philosophies have to do with the question, what is truth? What is truth? Going back to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, you won't find a consensus. And so there's the rise of skepticism. There's relativism. There's different waves of that searching for ultimate truth. And that would continue on to 
the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. They were only concerned about the here and now. So instead of making sense of life and death and life beyond the grave, what was most important to them was the present. They were trying to answer the same question, how can I live in this world and be happy? And for the Epicureans, the chief goal of life was to attain the maximum amount of pleasure and the minimum amount of pain. If it feels good, it is good, so do it. And if it doesn't, then don't do it. This is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This life is all there is. At death, the body and soul, they believe, disintegrated, and there is no afterlife. And you can see the implications of this worldview, how they would live their lives. And simplifying it, do you know anyone who lives like that? It's all about the here and now. I'm not worried about the future. The phrase, YOLO, you only live once. Or Joe Osteen would say, your best life now. There's no regard for anyone else but yourself, and ultimately life is about you. You've missed the point. And for the Stoics, happiness is to live in agreement with nature. They were pantheists. They believed that everything was God. God was in the rocks. God was in the trees. God was in the buildings. God was in all material things. And so they believed in living in harmony with nature. They were also proud fatalists, thinking that choices and actions don't really make a difference because everything is determined by fate. What will be, will be. It is what it is. You just got to deal with it. There's no real meaning. There's no real purpose in life. And this perspective would lead to and give rise to individualism and self-sufficiency. And again, it comes down to life is about you. Life is about you. And you can sum it up this way. For the Epicureans, it was enjoyment of pleasure and escapement of pain. And for the Stoics, it was submission to fate and endurance of pain. It is what it is. You just got to deal with it. They are different, but they agree that all anyone can really know is the here and now. They don't think about the ultimate reality of truth. They don't think about life beyond the grave. They think about today and tomorrow and how they feel right now. And here, Paul is sent to Athens for his protection, and he observes the city full of idols. And so he reasons and proclaims Christ wherever he goes, to whoever is around, whoever's present, and he goes and does, and he's given the opportunity, and also an audience where he can make Christ known and declare this one true and living God. And this is really First Peter 3, verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, Always being ready. Always being ready for what? Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. As you live your life for Christ and as you live your life speaking about Christ, there will be people who will ask you about Christ. And you're always to be ready to give a defense, to give an answer of the hope that is in you. This is what happened with Paul. And we move now from the provocation to the declaration, verses 22 to 31. Paul begins by addressing them as being very religious. Yet he also mentions their ignorance in what is really their suppression of the truth. He points out the foolishness of their false worship in that they are even worshiping an unknown God. They're worshiping an unknown God. Verses 22 and 23 says, 
So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And beginning in verse 24, Paul proclaims and declares that there is only one true and living God and why he alone must be worshipped. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. He is the creator. He is the sovereign Lord over all. And it says he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Theologians have called this the, the infinity of God which describes his nature as perfectly transcending, meaning existing and acting beyond all limitations of time and space. Transcendence means that God is greater than and independent of the creation, outside of the creation. And this speaks of his, in other words, immensity and his omnipresence. God perfectly transcends all limitation of time and space, yet he is present with every point of space, with all of who he is. Immensity refers to the fact that God transcends and fills all space. And his omnipresence indicates that God is present with every point of space in his, in his entire being. God is everywhere present. He fills heaven and earth so nothing is hidden from his sight. And he is both close and far off, as we'll see in verse 27. God transcends space. He's not bound to one place and he's fully present in every place. God also transcends time. God's existence is outside the bounds of time. While God interacts with his creation and his creatures from moment to moment, God himself transcends time. He cannot be limited by it in any way. He's not confined by it. He's not limited by it. He's not conditioned by limits or lengths of time. In other words, he's timeless, meaning that both the beginning and end of time are consciously experienced and are also present realities to God. God is high above us and he is not like us. And so in Paul's declaration of who God is in verse 24, we begin to see just how great God is. He's beyond our, our comprehension, yet he's knowable. He continues in verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He gives to all people life. Why are you living, God? And breath, why are you living now? How are you being sustained, God? And all things. It's like Paul's teaching a class on the doctrine of God. And he here declares the aseity of God, that God is independent of all things. He's perfectly self-sufficient, not depending on anything outside of himself for anything, and is therefore the eternal foundational being, the source of life and sustenance for all other beings. He says he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He is self-existent, having life in and of himself, and 
he existed before all things, and through him alone all things exist. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He is the source of everything, and he depends on nothing. Rather, all things depend on him. And so God needs nothing, being all-sufficient. We must understand this creator-creature distinction. And Paul says in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind, every ethnos of mankind. There is only one race, the human race. Understanding this will solve a lot of the issues going on right now. But within the one human race contains every ethnos, every ethnicity of mankind. There's a distinction between race and ethnicity and culture. And we need to understand that those distinctions, lest we blend them together. Ethnicity refers to a group of people that have a common heritage. All people created in the image of God. Therefore, all ethnicities, all groups of people are equal in value. And culture is a way of life and behaviors. It's the outflow, manifestation of your values and your beliefs. And it says God created every people group. Every ethnicity, every nation from one man, and he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, the when and where, and also the how and why, everything, so that they would seek him and worship him. So that they would seek him and worship him. Verse 27, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. Now you might be thinking Romans three, ten through 11. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And so you see the separation between God and man because of sin. We were created to make his glory known. We were created to worship God but we are blind, we are lost, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, we are separated from God. And so the sad reality, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. This is the depravity and total inability of man and the imminence and nearness of God at the same time. But looking forward to the future, we see in Revelation 7, 9, that this will happen. All the nations will come before the throne and worship him. The Apostle John says there in Revelation 7, 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The focus and emphasis is that they are all worshiping God God gets the glory due his name through the diversity of these different people groups that he has created by those whom Christ has redeemed and reconciled to himself. 
And so you see that true reconciliation is only found in Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as reconciliation of races, but only reconciliation of one race, the human race, of mankind restored back to God the Father so that they would worship him. And Paul continues in verse 28 to declare more about who God is. For in him we live and move and exist. Who is life about? As even your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Paul mentions that even their own poets have in some limited way acknowledged that, yet continue to suppress the truth. It's undeniable. And so verse 29, Paul points out how their idolatry is really absurd. It's illogical, it's irrational, it's unreasonable. He says, being then the children of God, as their poets have said, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. These images, these idols that Athens was full of. However, in light of that, Paul declares God's mercy, God's patience, God's long-suffering and justice and proclaims to them their only hope because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verses 30 and 31 says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. John 5, 22 and 27 says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, Even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. How are you reconciled to God? How are you made right with God through the Son of God and Son of Man, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? John 14, 6 says, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to me but through, no one comes to the Father but through me. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The only way to be reconciled to God, the one true and living God, is through his son Jesus Christ whom he has sent. He's the only one who can reconcile us. It's through his work, through his death, through his resurrection, through his substitution in our place. So we've seen the provocation, the declaration. Lastly, the response. Verses 32 to 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were the Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. We have to remember that these were pagan idolatrous worshipers who had a different view of life and death and what comes after death. 
So after hearing about God and Jesus and his life and death and the resurrection of Christ and what is to come, there were different responses again to the gospel. Some sneered, some mocked, some got angry. Others wanted to hear more, but also others believed. Others believed. This is why the gospel needs to be proclaimed. This is the constant message of Acts. This is why the gospel needs to be proclaimed wherever we are. We never know how the Lord is going to use our speaking about Christ, opening our mouths to share who Christ is, to give them knowledge of the Savior, to tell them that there is a judgment to come, that there is life after death, This is why also we are always be ready. We are always to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us. So the question for us is, are we always ready? Are we willing, first of all? And secondly, are we always ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us? That that word defense is apologia. It's apologetics. And apologetics can be thought of as a a debate, but it's not a debate. It's people seeing Christ in you, seeing Christ in your life and asking questions so that you are able to therefore evangelize in a sense, make Christ known, pointing to the scriptures, pointing to his life and his death and his resurrection. But it sometimes turned into this back and forth about different worldviews and what is truth and what is whatever. And there is a place for that. And it is helpful. Because unbelievers, when you push them to their their logic, you push their logic to their presuppositions, their beginning point, when it comes to their understanding of truth and morality, everything falls apart for them. They can't answer consistently those questions about ultimate truth and morality. There's no consistency. There's no reasoning. There's no rationality. And so, yes, you can win arguments that way. But people need to hear about Christ, most of all. And we can't forget that the hope that we live with, the hope that we display in our daily lives, the unity that we have as Christ's body, our interactions with one another, our love for one another, the assurance that we have in our salvation. We're not people walking around in in doubt of his power in our lives. All those things are also apologetics to this watching world. How we live our lives is the apologetic in this world so that people ask us questions. They see distinct living. Imagine if people came into our service and we were fighting. If there was disunity, if there's people sitting there discouraged in despair, not living with hope, with joy, what would they think? The gospel doesn't change everything. The gospel has no power. And so it matters how we live our lives. It's a testimony to the watching world. It gives us opportunities to speak about Christ and proclaim the good news. That's why we're given commands to rejoice always. In all things to give thanks, to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. To do all things without grumbling and disputing. 
shows the hope that we have in Christ. It speaks. That speaks. Also, our unity and love with one another, that we're able to overlook preferences and to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves. There's no complaining, there's no discouragement, there's no despairing. And if there is, it's momentary as we look to Christ, as we encourage one another and bear one another's burdens and make Christ known to one another. So it's not about debating, it's not about being right. It's not about knowing all the answers. It's about displaying Christ, living for Christ, showing them Christ, pointing them to Christ, making Christ known to them. So are you always ready? In other words, are you living the Christian life faithfully? Also, another question, are you prepared to proclaim the gospel? Are you prepared to proclaim the gospel? And coming back around, who are you living for? Who are you living for? The reality is we're created in God's image to be his image bearers, to make him known, to worship him, to make his name great. And you've seen from the beginning of Genesis how far we have rebelled, how far this world is from the one true and living God. They don't know the one true and living God. They don't know that he is sovereign Lord over all. They don't know that one day they will face an eternal judgment They don't know that God is love. They don't know that God is grace and merciful and patient. They don't know the good news that Christ is their only hope. So are you prepared to proclaim the gospel? Who are you living for? There is only one true and living God. And he has made himself known that we may know him. And we are to make him known. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so all praise, all honor, all glory, all worship belongs to God. And so we sing, let all things their creator bless and worship him in humbleness. Oh, praise him, hallelujah, praise him, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise him, hallelujah. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. This sermon by Paul declares the greatness of God in all of who he is, why he alone deserves the glory and the honor and the praise, the one who created everything and sustains everything and why everything exists. We must tell this world this perverse and crooked generation, as we observe the idols all around us, would our hearts be provoked? Would our mouths be opened to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to give hope, to be a light, to be salt in this world, which is what we've been called to do. May we stand upon the word of God. May we take confidence in the spirit that's in us. May we stand together as his people to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word and the power of the gospel to change lives. 
We're thankful that you've made yourself known to us. We're thankful that we're able to see just how small we are and how big you are. How our very breath depends upon you. How every moment of life is under your control. How every thought, how every deed is observed and known by you. Father, help us to see just how holy you are, how great you are. Help us also to see the goodness of your salvation provided to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you've chosen a people You've called the people to be your own possession, that we may make your name known to the ends of the earth. Father, thank you for this privilege. Thank you for this calling. May we be faithful. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.